Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and why Mother Nature is pissed at all of us. Like seriously, why is she so mad? Despite two catastrophic climate emergencies earlier this year, Nova Scotia has somehow found itself facing yet another devastating crisis. One thing that Nova Scotians certainly aren't immune to is a bit of wet weather, but this just very well may be the exception. Several parts of Nova Scotia are grappling with significant flooding after a prolonged thunder and lightning storm to start the weekend. Four people are missing after their vehicles were left submerged. 40,000 customers across the province are currently without power. The Canadian press is reporting the identity of a man who died during last weekend's extreme flooding in the province. With regret, I can share that yesterday we recovered human remains from the shores of Advocate Harbour in Cumberland County. Heavy rainfall prompted massive floods across the province. The videos and images in the early aftermath of the flood were devastating. Homes were completely destroyed, people were isolated and missing, entire vehicles were submerged underwater. And unfortunately, there have been a total of four deaths reported at the hands of this climate emergency. And yes, this is a climate emergency. There's a correlation between rising temperatures, wildfires, and heavier rainfall. Rising temperatures lead to drier conditions, which increases the risk of wildfires, but the warmer weather also augments the atmosphere's ability to hold moisture, which leads to heavier downpours that can cause flooding. And just as parts of Canada have been seeing extreme weather this year, so has the rest of the world. The United States, South Korea, India, Japan, China, Turkey, and most recently, fires in Greece. Climate-related emergencies are on the rise globally. But one question that keeps coming to mind is why the hell we can't seem to get it together here in Canada and actually take meaningful action? I spent most of the past six weeks at my mom's house in Halifax, and the impact of the recent fires and flooding in Nova Scotia was impossible to ignore while I was there. 
Although my family was thankfully not severely impacted by either of the emergencies, I didn't have to stray far from home to find acres of torched woodlands or road closures due to washouts. It feels like we're at a tipping point where climate-related disasters are no longer something that's happening outside of urban areas and therefore ignored by a significant chunk of Canadians. Whether it's air quality being reduced due to wildfire smoke in Ontario and Quebec, or fires and flooding in Nova Scotia, the emergency is knocking at our door now and it's not going away anytime soon. So why do our policies seem to lag behind in effectively assisting communities facing both immediate and long-term climate change-related challenges? when we can reasonably predict that these disasters are going to keep happening, and it's not new news, like an inconvenient truth came out in 2006. And also, why have we been blaming the carbon tax for all of our climate-related policy failures? Is the carbon tax actually as bad as some politicians, uh, hi, Premier Tim Houston, whose government was running a bunch of anti-carbon tax ads right in the run-up to the floods? Atlantic premiers and, and many premiers across the country, but certainly uh, myself, we're, we're opposed to the federal government's um, carbon tax um, plans. It's going to have a, a devastating impact on, on Nova Scotians. Chloe Logan has been following all of these things closely. She's a Halifax-based reporter for the National Observer, covering climate, the environment, and politics. And I have a lot of questions for her, so let's get into it. Chloe, welcome to the backbench. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. In the lead up to these disasters, like say let's roll it back to a year ago before Hurricane Fiona, before the fires, before the flooding. Was this something that you, you know, might have expected to happen? Or was this sort of these many severe events happening in such quick succession? Was that something that took you by surprise? You know, with Hurricane Fiona, there have been hurricanes in Atlantic Canada before that didn't take me by surprise. But the wildfires, I mean, those were unprecedented, right? Those were wild. And for me growing up in BC, you know, I'm used, well, used is a weird term, but I'm used to wildfires happening every summer. But those, I think, definitely took me by surprise. I was out camping and I was driving back in to Halifax and off the side of the highway, I just see all the smoke billowing. Yeah, I got home, like checked on the news. I mean, there were multiple fires happening, but there was a fire happening like in the suburbs outside of Halifax, which I think that took me by surprise. I think it took a lot of people by surprise. And then the flooding, I mean, I think having all three happen in a year. Yeah, that is surprising. That's a jump. But the fires, I think, were were really big in the sense that people were not expecting that. They're not used to fires. They're not prepared for them, maybe. I don't think, you know, the province or the municipalities, I don't think they were prepared. And I don't think individuals were prepared. I mean, you talk to people in like rural BC and they're, you know, doing all sorts of fire prevention things. But I don't think that's as common in Nova Scotia where people, people just don't feel like they're as vulnerable to an event like that. Hurricanes are something that have happened in the region for a long time. Like one of my sort of earliest formative memories is Hurricane Juan happened like right after I had started my first year of school. And so those events are tied together in a really clear way in my mind. But it was the sort of thing where, you know, every maybe not even 10 years, like it would be 20, 30, these big intervals of time where you'd have, you know, storm of a generation type of thing. And it wasn't like you could expect that every year, every two years, you would have a hurricane that would cause such significant damage, such significant flooding. So it, it's it's been interesting seeing the region sort of adapt to this new reality, like road washouts even or something that in the past, like... I was used to road washouts in Cape Breton. Like, it was a very common thing that the roads sort of in the north of Smoky region where my grandparents are, there'd be washouts and 
that was like a common thing, particularly in places where there aren't always paved roads. But for there to be not in sort of exurban, like rural parts of the Halifax Regional Municipality, but for there to be in Bedford, which is like, it's the North York of Halifax for people that are Toronto-based. Significant road washouts to the point that like people had to evacuate. There's like videos of patios floating just away from the buildings that they're supposed to be attached to. Like, it's been very real. So in the aftermath of these recent tragedies, how did, I know you mentioned the province and the municipality maybe didn't seem as prepared as they should have been for these sorts of events. How did the province, and I guess the city of Halifax as well, if you want to get into that, respond to these crises? In terms of emergency response and kind of alerts and things like that, I think each event was different. So, I mean, before Hurricane Fiona, there was messaging sent out by the province, which basically said, you know, Fiona could be stronger than Dorian. You need to prepare for this. And I think people took that seriously because, like you said, the frequency and the intensity of these events, those are all going up. But people... I think to a certain extent know what to do when a hurricane is coming. You know, you see everyone going to the grocery store, they're stocking up, they're loading ice in their coolers. But wildfires are a lot less predictable. We don't get as much of a heads up about wildfires. And there has been criticism around how the emergency alert system was used for that because people had to evacuate. I mean, I think it was like 20,000 people in the province evacuated, 16,000 or so were in that suburban area outside of Halifax and then in Shelburne County, which is like 250 kilometers west of Halifax, I think 4,000 people had to evacuate. But some people were getting these evacuation orders like an hour and a half after, you know, their neighborhoods were already like engulfed in flames. But then I think the really interesting thing was on the flip side, once people could return home, we were getting like so many emergency alerts. It was always overcompensating or something. Like I was sitting at home, it's like 10 p.m., that loud noise. And it's like people in X subdivision can return home. And then you'd get another one that said another subdivision. I don't know. I think people have been kind of criticizing the misuse of emergency alerts in that situation. I know the Halifax Examiner did some good writing about that idea of alert fatigue, where it's like, okay, you need to be using these when there's a real emergency. And then then the floods, it also took a long time for an emergency alert to be put out. I think it was Friday afternoon, it was really obvious that an unsafe situation was unfolding, like people should stay off the roads, but no emergency alert was put out until I think 10pm telling people what was going on, telling people stay off the roads. And then you mentioned the city of Halifax, there's also a municipal alert system, which you have to sign up for. It's not like the one on your phone that you just get if you're in the area. But the municipal alert system didn't put anything out until Saturday evening. So that's a whole other conversation, I guess, municipal versus provincial kind of emergency alerts. So I guess one of the issues that arises in response to these like kind of climate crises is that it's sometimes not clear who bears responsibility for those immediate response needs, like evacuating people who need to be evacuated, providing shelter temporarily to people who need shelter. So in practice, how do those responsibilities get divided up? Something I've heard a little bit about is that it's at the municipal level, you know, whatever municipality that you're in, those are the people that really understand what's happening on the ground. And so I think that there's kind of this game of telephone that's happening between municipalities and the province where, say something happened in Halifax, it's not like the city of Halifax can press a button and get that messaging out in a second. I think it has to go through this 
chain of command. And so you're seeing people on the ground who know what's going on, not being able to communicate that directly to people who need to hear it. That's one of the main things. I think that there's like two sorts of solutions that we need to be talking about here when we're looking at these kinds of events, right? There's not one policy that's going to help people. And I mean, I think it's an issue of money, which always makes things tricky, right? So it's like climate resilient infrastructure training, it costs money. And a lot of this is at the municipal level, right? Whether it's a rural municipality or a city municipality, and often municipalities don't have the means to pay for that. Putting better drainage on roads or whatever the solution may be, you know, those sorts of things need to happen to, like, keep people safer. But, you know, municipalities are notoriously cash-strapped, and obviously there are federal programs that try to address this, but it's really hard to, like, get the funds put out. I kind of think that, you know, municipalities and First Nations and, you know, rural areas, like they need to be maybe given more money and more autonomy in terms of figuring out what their specific solution will be. I know that there's been issues with like cell service and like people not even getting these very delayed emergency alerts because they don't have proper cell service. And so, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of challenges, I guess. There's adaptation, there's prevention, and I think these policies are sticky. It's not so simple just telling people, oh, you need to move or something. Like, there's a lot of conversations going on about the idea of managed retreat. I mean, that's been something that's talked about in California. You know, if you're, say, you live close to the coast and, you know, this is somewhere that sea level rise is likely going to affect, like, there are communities that are being asked to leave. And I I just don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. I think knowing where, you know, if, if there's somewhere we haven't built on yet, like, I think we should be investing in research and figuring out, okay, is this area going to be prone to these events? Okay, maybe don't build here now, you know, like, I think it's about looking forward. And then the places we do have, like trying to make them more resilient to climate change. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So I do want to pivot to one of the sort of marquee long-term planning climate policies that this federal government specifically has had is they were like, we're going to introduce the carbon tax. Now, obviously, the carbon tax doesn't itself stop climate disasters from happening. It's not like, okay, well, there was going to be a fire, but now we have a tax, so there's no fire. But the notion would be that it's supposed to change consumer preferences, right? And that over the long term, it's going to stop things from getting worse, as opposed to really making things better in the short term the federal government's carbon tax plan went into effect this July 1st. So this was news to me because as an Ontario resident, like we've had a price on carbon for I think a couple years now. I just kind of assumed that everywhere in Canada, this had already happened. 
Come to find out when I went home and saw all these ads complaining about how the government was not taking, the federal government, that is, was not taking the needs of Nova Scotians into consideration and, like, it's going to make life so much more expensive. I was like, this didn't already happen? Like, what what are (laughs) you complaining about? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's been a long discussion, as you said. So, I mean, since the carbon tax was announced in 2016, it's just been chaos since then. Even during the announcement, then Nova Scotia Environment Minister Margaret Miller just walked out of the announcement along with ministers from Saskatchewan and Newfoundland. So like you said, this was like an election promise from Trudeau and the Fed said to provinces and territories, you can create your own. We don't mind. But if you don't, we're going to impose one on you. And I think it has just been kind of wild to see it all unfold. I'm not sure if you've taken a look at the proposal that was put forward, but basically it didn't even have a tax on carbon in the proposal. It was just like, we are going to, you know, increase renewables and efficiency programs and close down cold fire power plants, which that's already federally mandated. It's been like one thing after another with this. I mean, I think what's been really interesting is they haven't really been spreading the information about, you know, the rebates that you get because of this tax, right? You get a quarterly rebate and the federal government says that eight out of 10 households will get more money back from those rebate checks than what they pay. And something that I actually didn't know till just the other day was that people in rural areas actually get an extra 10% on their rebates, you know? So you see Houston talking about, how this is especially unfair for rural people, you know, they have to drive, but those people do get a top up. I mean, I think it is a valid criticism in terms of obviously rural areas are so underserved in terms of like any public transport. I think it's as good a time as any to talk about, you know, making public transport in cities and in rural areas more accessible, cheaper, maybe free. I think what's been happening with Houston lately is he's just spreading I'd say misinformation around this and making people feel scared because people are obviously worried about life getting more expensive. And you see him just pushing that again and again, but not really spreading much about the rebates or anything positive about how the carbon tax could help the climate. This is something I also noticed is that when the, the sort of carbon pricing scheme was going into force in Nova Scotia, if you watched, say, like, the 6 o'clock news on CTV or CBC, the reporting on the carbon tax that most people who get their news that way would have seen was basically like, the carbon tax is coming into effect today. And we talked to, you know, they were doing streeters, basically. It's like, we're going to talk to this person on the street and ask them how they feel about the carbon tax. And obviously, if you're just polling people at the gas station, like, how do you feel that gas is going to be, you know, 10 cents a liter more expensive or whatever it ended up being as a result of this tax, you're probably not going to get sound bites that are really, like, great analysis of the policy, right? You're going to get a lot of, like, I'm annoyed that my gas is more expensive and, like, this is not helping given that inflation is already making life so much more expensive. And you're right, like, there hasn't been as much of a focus on rebates. So, How is this policy actually intended to work? Yeah, I think people's confusion and fear makes a lot of sense just because there has been, 
yeah, very little public education around the carbon tax. And also, I think that's partly because it is kind of complex and confusing. It's not like this really simple thing that you can sum up in a sentence, you know? So carbon pricing, also known as the carbon tax, it aims to create financial incentive for businesses and individuals to pollute less. And so it literally puts a price on pollution, a price on each ton of carbon dioxide or equivalent greenhouse gas emitted when fossil fuels are consumed. So like, you know, burned. And it does this in two ways. So the first is through attacks on fossil fuels like we've been talking about. So that's gasoline and diesel at the gas station along with home heating oil, which that's really relevant in Atlantic Canada. And then the second part of the tax applies to industries and is called the output-based pricing system. And that works by charging polluters when they emit more than a certain amount of carbon dioxide equivalent or more a year. And in Nova Scotia, the largest polluter is Nova Scotia Power, just to like give some context on who that's affecting. But with the federal carbon tax on fuel, you know, it works like any sales tax would in the practical sense of how it shows up for a person, right? So they go to the gas pump and they're seeing that show up when they buy gas. So the concept of the carbon tax is that by making fossil fuels more expensive, consumption of fossil fuels will go down, which will make Canada's emissions go down. And then all of that should make cleaner alternatives economically competitive. It should change investment patterns. And then it's the idea is also that revenue generated from the carbon tax, you know, that doesn't go back to people through rebates should go into clean energy projects and other climate friendly initiatives. And like you said, the idea of a carbon tax isn't new. I mean, BC has had one since 2008. I was reading a blog post by the David Suzuki Foundation the other day, and they actually pointed to Sweden, which has had a carbon tax since 1991. And they kind of talked about how, you know, through that tax, that tax specifically has cut emissions by 20%, you know, since since 91. And at the same time, it's funneled like a lot of money into green alternatives to oil heating and then kind of, yeah, work to accelerate the shift to the green economy and all while growing the economy as a whole. Yeah. So I guess in terms of rebates, right, because I think there's a couple of problems with the way that the carbon tax has been talked about. One is that the output based element of it that is purely applied to industry just gets completely cut out of the conversation. And I think that, like, there are certainly ways in which, like, you could make an argument that that cost would still get passed down to consumers in some way. But, like, we're not even having that conversation at all, right, because it's purely been a conversation, at least from what I've been mostly, like, reading and hearing about the tax that's placed sort of at the point of consumption on things like home heating oil and gas for your car. So the federal government defense of this that you keep hearing and the kind of canned response is basically like to state the amount that people are going to get back in rebates. So I guess like according to your estimation, you know, roughly how much money is that supposed to be. And then according to your estimation, do you think that like for the average person, is it in fact true sort of this framing of like, well, you're going to basically get back as much as you paid in? Then I guess the other question people have is like, well, if that's true, like, why do we even have this at all? For a family of four, they'll get $248 four times a year. And then it kind of tax on money for each child and things like that. So, I mean, that's a pretty significant amount of money each year. And so 
I mean, it's it's not it's not my calculation, right? That's just what the government says that eight out of ten people will get more money back than what they put in, and then we do know that that's the clear financial amount that people can expect in their quarterly rebates. You get at this tricky thing, right? People are like, "What is the?" point of this, you know, it feels like just funneling money around and making things difficult for people. But I think it's it's been proven that the carbon tax works in in other places. A lot of the money is going back to people through rebates. But then, you know, we have money that isn't and that money is going to be spent hopefully doing, you know, increasing renewables and things like that. And so I think it's like a difficult concept. Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting about the discourse around the carbon tax now is like, it used to be the case that the carbon tax was the sort of policy that if you were a conservative politician who wanted to show that you cared about the environment, the carbon tax was actually something you might get behind because it was a market-based solution. So it wasn't like banning people from doing anything. It wasn't seen as as restrictive. It's like, okay, well we'll put a price on something. There is sort of a a cost that we can attach to this. And people can, like, decide for themselves whether they want to avoid this tax by, like, putting solar panels on their house or something. So it's been interesting to see that shift from sort of some conservatives, they could kind of get behind this as an idea, even if they maybe weren't, like, super in favor, like, gung-ho about it, but just didn't have this, like, visceral uh, aversion to it. Whereas now we see at the federal level, like, federal conservatives have really staked their claim as being completely, you know, across the board opposed to really any sort of carbon price, it seems like. Canadians cannot afford to pay anymore. And that's why my common sense plan is to axe the tax... Well, certainly New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, I believe also PEI, all have conservative premiers at the moment. I think Newfoundland is like the one outlier. And we've seen that they'll rock up to these first minister's meetings and they are all united against the carbon tax in like a very aggressive way. And framing it not just as sort of their party's opposition to carbon pricing, but really taking on this mantle of like Atlantic Canadians do not want this and and speaking in very universal terms. So is there something that's specific about the Atlantic province's relationship with this tax or like is is there anything to this idea that the region is going to be affected like in a specific adverse way by it? Yeah, I think it's been so interesting to see them come together. Like, I'm not sure if you saw, but the Atlantic premiers came together and started like an actual campaign called Fight the Federal Gas Hike, which was critiquing the the clean fuel regulations, which require companies to gradually reduce the carbon content of their fuels, but also, you know, the carbon tax. And they have a website and everything where they urge people to send letters to the federal government. But the Atlantic premiers as a unit, I mean, they've been pushing back against, you know, it's not just one climate policy, it's climate policies as a whole. I mean, I think the Atlantic provinces are in a tricky spot. Well, you know, certainly Nova Scotia, where we still burn tons of coal, you know, and Newfoundland, where a lot of like identity is wrapped up in oil and gas, like, you know, we're seeing they're, they're trying to expand that. They're hoping for an offshore oil boom. You know, the, the Newfoundland government's plan, they want to double offshore oil production by 2030, which is the opposite of what we need to be doing. And so I think it's like, yeah, they're unified against the carbon tax, but they're unified against a lot of climate policy. And 
I think it's just this idea where the Atlantic provinces, they feel forgotten about maybe, they feel shoved aside, and they're like, it's harder for us to reduce emissions, which, I mean, I think that's true. Like, there was just an updated figure released that's like around 40% or something now of electricity in Nova Scotia comes from coal. I mean, that's really tricky to get off that much coal, you know, and they are having these difficult talks with the federal government around the Atlantic Loop, which is this like energy corridor that is the main way that that Nova Scotia could get off coal. And so I think it's like all these conversations are bleeding into each other and all this tension with the federal government. And I think they're rallying around the carbon tax because like you said, it's people here the carbon tax and it's explained, you know, in one sentence and they're like, oh, that sounds bad. And that sounds like it affects me. And so I think they're able to really rally, especially like conservative voters around that. Yeah, because like you said, it's also at the federal level, the federal conservatives are also talking about the carbon tax. So it's this, it's this hot topic that I think really represents a larger picture. Nova Scotia is still using so much coal, like, oh, makes yeah. me feel insane. I know. <laughs> I think especially because there's not even that much coal mining anymore. Like, it made sense when there was coal mining that you would use coal because it's right there. Yeah. My dad, like, in the 80s would have to get up in the middle of the night and shovel coal into his family's furnace. Oh, my God. <laughs> that what? was, like, his his little job that he had to do. His little um, job. I actually, just a little job. <laughs> his, just a little job. Get up in the middle of the night and shovel coal into the furnace. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when maybe we'll know whether Justin Trudeau has settled on Hinge or the more exclusive Raya as his dating app of choice. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter and also on Instagram if you're over Twitter, at Matea Roach. You can find Chloe Logan at The National Observer and on Twitter at Chloe I. Logan, and that's Chloe without the H. Last week, Taylor Swift announced that she would be coming to Toronto for six dates of the Eras Tour in November of 2024, which means I now know when I will be planning on taking a vacation out of town. It's been triumph after triumph for Taylor recently, as she just passed the Glee cast on the list of artists with the most all-time songs on the Billboard Hot 100. Drake is currently number one, and I can only assume that she's coming for his crown next. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azria with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo, and our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you haven't checked out our Instagram yet, be sure to take a look. It might be your last chance for a while. In response to Bill C-18, social media giant Meta, the company behind Facebook and Instagram, has started blocking Canadian users from accessing news content, including Candleland, on their platforms. We'll be okay, but we do want to make sure we can still keep in touch with you. So, here's what you can do. Subscribe to our newsletter. It's completely free, comes out every Friday, keeps you up to date on our stories, and also gives you some inside insight into our team. Plus, we've started highlighting stories you should be paying attention to from other independent Canadian news outlets, too. So you can get diverse perspectives from across the country on any number of topics. We've got a link in our show notes to sign up for our newsletter. Check it out. 
If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Speak.